0: Okay, welcome everyone, Who is sort of our opening today. I want to thank you for joining us today for April 3rd, 2022 Sunday worship with Shibkei Fellowship. Uh, if you're new here, we want to welcome you and hopefully get your names down today and get to know you more a little bit later. But in the meantime, let's dwell and let's go into God's Word. We're continuing our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the first epistle to the Corinthians. So let's go to chapter 14 and we're going to read six verses today verses 20 to 25 last week uh, or two weeks ago i should say in the first five verses we looked at of course the command and imperative to pursue love and to desire spiritual gifts but paul remember if you remember made his argument that prophecy is more profitable for the community of christ and the church because of its ability to edify the church and then last week of course we looked at the analogies that paul gave from verses 6 to 19 uh, in reference to that argument and in support, in support of that argument. Uh, and he gave a couple analogies and examples and a teaching uh, to build on that argumentation. Today he continues and almost closes that argument for us today in verses 20 to 25. So let's read together God's Word, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 25. This is the Word of God. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil Be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will, not, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Uh, My apologies, I think the slide is not up to date, so it's 1420-25, but anyways, amen, that's the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 1420-25, those of you who are online anyways, uh, please disregard the slide at this moment. Anyways, uh, today's sermon is entitled, In Your Thinking, Be Mature, and that's going to make a lot of sense to you as we go deeper into this particular text. Before we do so, however, as we do on a weekly basis, we will pray for an unreached people group. And our unreached people group for the day come f- or come from uh, the nation of Chad. And they are the Maba. And they're about 546,000 of these people. So just a little over half million of them. 0.1% evangelical Christian. They are mainly uh, a, um, an Islamic group. So they're Muslim in faith. And they live in sort of the center, I guess, central east of Chad, region of Chad in a I guess a very enclosed area in one of the provinces. So we're praying for the Maba of Chad and uh, their faith in their salvation. And then, of course, globally, what's going on in the world today? There's tons of things going on. Um, But I want to pray for, of course, continually uh, the unfortunate reality of war overseas in Ukraine. I know we've been praying for this kind of on a weekly basis now. It's sort of tradition at this point, and it's really sad that it is. And so we have to keep praying. I think it's it's imperative. It's truly Im- important for us uh, to continue to pray for those people there. Uh, so let's pray for the situation in Ukraine. Hopefully for resolution and uh, ceasing of war and death, unnecessary death. Uh, but also for the refugees that are coming uh, over to uh, other countries, and uh, especially here in Canada, we've really opened our doors uh, to Ukrainian refugees. And so I'm actually researching ways for our church to be able to partake in uh, perhaps supporting some of these. Uh, families who've uh, unfortunately come over as a result of war. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the truth of your word. Um, Before we go into it, we ask, of course, again, uh, the spirit to work in us. We ask that the word today would be uh, truth to our minds and uh, conviction to our hearts. We ask, Father, for um, just revelation uh, today that we would truly soak up like a sponge um, everything that you have in store for us. So we thank you for that. We also pray for the mob of Chad, uh, this unreached people group, Lord Father, who are lost um, in what essentially is a false idol, a false faith, a false teaching that is Islam. We ask, O oh Lord, for a revelation of truth in that community, for the proclamation of the gospel to those people so that they too would hear and respond to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we also pray for what's happening in Ukraine. It saddens us on a daily basis, if not almost hourly basis hearing uh, some of the updates and reports on how this war is going, uh, the devastating uh, loss, and the incredible impact it's having on uh, the globe today. A uh, number of refugees coming over here to Canada and the United States and other parts of Europe. Uh, we ask for those families, hopefully to be able to get back on their feet and uh, have uh, a stable household. Once again, it sucks that they have to leave their homes and their home country. Uh, For a reason like this. And so we ask that the church would respond in grace uh, and the church would respond in faithfulness to you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, today's sermon is entitled, In Your Thinking Be Mature. Paul brings uh, the argument against the use of tongues in public worship. Remember, that's the main crux of the argument the gift of tongues pitted against the gift of prophecy in the context of public worship. Uh, to its ultimate end, if you will. This is sort of the concluding statements of Paul on this this particular topic. Next week, we will look at sort of the extension of that, but this is sort of the beginning of the end of that argument. After arguing that prophecy is more profitable for the purpose of edification, right? Building up of the church, because uh, in comparison to tongues, I should say uninterpreted tongues, because why? We argued it is intelligible. It is understandable communication as opposed to the uninterpreted tongues, which is unintelligible. Paul now gives us a set of verses that is hotly debated in biblical scholarship. Now, you read this right now, 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 25. I don't know if you read it and thought, wow, this is a very, you know, weird text, or this is a text that, you know, kind of confuses me. I don't know if that sense got to you, but if you, if you read it carefully, it is quite perplexing and I'll get to why that is and we'll get to the explanation of that Uh, but Paul gives us a set of verses that's hotly debated in biblical scholarship even today it is appropriate that he would open with the imperative think maturely because that is exactly what we need to do to understand the passage now at first glance you may not recognize the issue and the complexity of the matter of these verses but that's what I think my job as a pastor is to do for you to do the work You know, typically we don't do it, present it to you, and then give you an interpretation and understanding that fits with the biblical teaching and narrative. At first glance, you may not recognize it, but at second, I'm sure now that I've mentioned it, you'll begin to ponder what is the confusion of this text. It's not so much to confuse you today or cause concern in you, that's not my goal, but it's to help you read scripture with a keen eye towards these things. You know, of course, the famous saying, I don't know how the saying goes, but it's like give a man a meal he eats for one day, give, you know, teach him how to fish and he can eat for days or something like that. That's the thing we want to do. I want to teach you how to fish here. I'm equipping you and training you to read your Bibles carefully. To not just glean over text, not just go over the text. and go, Oh, that makes sense. That's the Bible. That's Jesus's words. But to carefully read and examine the text. I want to show you how to read it that way so you can extract from it what I think is the truth. Now, allow me to break down the structure of today's passage and today's text first, because that'll help you see the problem. Paul issues a statement, beginning in the beginning, to not think childishly, but to be mature in thought. Not controversial yet. He then, in verse twenty-three, or sorry, verse twenty-one, gives us an Old Testament reference from the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's it's a loose translation, if you or a reference, if you will, but it's a reference nonetheless, and it's. In, in, in construct it's there that supports his reasoning for why tongues is profitable for the unbeliever and not the believer then in verse 22 and this is where the crux of the issue lies he explains that tongues and prophecy are signs to these two groups believers and unbelievers. he then gives the practical issue of such use of these gifts in the General Assembly in verses 23 to 25 so you might wonder Max, what is the issue? The issue lies in Paul's seemingly contradictory statements in these verses. On one hand, he states, tongues is a sign to the unbeliever. Unclear yet as to what kind of sign that exactly is. He doesn't go into explanation as to what kind of sign it is. He just says it is a sign for the unbeliever. Based on his reference of Isaiah 28, 11. And then the application in verses 23 to 25 Seems to indicate this that tongues is not profitable to the unbeliever in assembly, but prophecy is. However, in verse 22, he stated that tongues is a sign to the unbeliever, while prophecy is a sign to the believer. The line of logic in these verses don't appear to flow well or properly. Um, so, in verse again, in verse 22, he's saying, Hey, look, this is a sign for unbelievers. He goes on 23, 24, 25. Wait, when everyone assembles, therefore, when you assemble, prophesy because it's good for the unbeliever. But you just said prophecy is for the believer and tongues is for the unbeliever. Why then are we switching the tables here? Like what's going on, right? Not only that, the reasoning behind this, the foundation of the argument stems from Isaiah twenty-eight eleven, And I have no idea how those connect. And I'll give you the context of Isaiah 28 and we'll figure out how this whole puzzle pieces together. I'll give you a little bit of hope right now. It does, all right? But you know, you should know that. But we need to examine it carefully because by logic, it doesn't make sense, at least at first glance. So the line of logic doesn't appear to flow properly from Paul and scholars thus have dug deep into this text, one of the most perplexing, some would say, in all of 1 Corinthians, to try and interpret this text properly. Now, in light of the many arguments and many hours of sifting through them, I've done the job for you, if you will, My job now will be today to show you that there exists a reading of this text and understanding of this text that I think is not only proper and correct, but extremely reliable and sensible. An interpretation that most scholars of relevancy today and theologians of good accord have come to rest upon. I will provide the basic framework of that understanding and I believe it will edify you today. With that said, let's dive into our text and examine its meaning. I hope I've, ex- I've explained some of the issues well enough that you are now hooked on this and now we can get into it. So four points to today's sermon. I've just divided it simply. First point, think not like a child, verse 20. Verse 21, the judgment from the Assyrians. Verse 22, tongues and prophecy as signs. And then the final point, therefore, when you gather, verses 23 to 25. So let's quickly look at verse 20, 21, 22, and then 23 to 25. First point, think not like a child. This is the simplest part of the text today. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul could not not refer to the Corinthians, if you remember, as mature adults in the faith, but rather as, if you remember chapter 3, infants. You guys remember that? This was a while ago. This was like, was this not last year? I think this was last summer when we did like the barbecue almost, right? We talked about... 1 Corinthians 3, right? And so in that chapter, his reference uh, to the Corinthians was like being like a child, childlike. And that reference was in in regards to their immaturity in the faith displayed by what? Their non-spiritual behavior towards one another and towards others. Paul was addressing in that chapter their childlike actions that stemmed from their lack of ability to yet consume Do you remember this? Solid food. Remember that? That they're not ready for solid food. They're still on milk. And we define what those terms mean back then. So if you forgot, you know, you can always go to the faithful YouTube or podcast platform of your choice and listen or read all of those things, right? 1 Corinthians 3, first verses of that chapter. Instead of what? The solid food, which is, of course, advanced teachings of godly truth. They were yet infants in Paul's perspective in their spiritual maturity. This is not to be confused with today's opening remark from Paul that is expressing, I think, equally as direct to the Corinthians, a child-likeness, but more so a childishness in them. Paul urges them to what? What is the command today? Think not like a child. Not think like a child. Do not think like a child, he reads. Meaning this, to not have a mentality that is childish. We will define this soon some will read this 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 verse particularly and think of it as a contradiction to a famous saying of or famous teaching of jesus christ found in matthew 18 that only those who become like a child can enter the kingdom of god right so jesus says you know you must be like these my children like a child in order to enter the kingdom of god but paul says do not think like a child so What's going on here? Is this a contradiction? No. Those who've carefully read both texts, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 14, will be able to pick up the difference quite easily. Jesus, in that chapter, is speaking on the child likeness of the believer's heart to trust and follow God faithfully with innocence in the ways of the truths of the Lord. Right? He's talking about faithful obedience like a child of their parents for example right that's the sort of extension of that analogy of Jesus the child like receptiveness and obedience is what Jesus is speaking on in that text that's not what Paul's talking about here Paul is talking about the mind Paul is addressing a warning against the features of children that aren't commendable to the mature believer and what are those features namely the lack of lack of knowledge and the minimal mental capacity of children. Now, that's a nice way of me saying children are not very smart. Okay? <laughs> that's just, it's just a biological restriction. It's not that children are capable of being super intelligent, but are not. They're yet not yet developed to the point where they can be, right? Uh, capable of having high mental intelligence. And that's what Paul is addressing we are to trust and follow God like a child, as Jesus teaches, but we're not to think childishly or like a child. Those are two different things. So don't confuse those two things. They're not contradictions. And then the second thing, Paul's urge is twofold in this text, right? There's two things he's telling us to do. Do not be children in your thinking, but, and here's the here's the opposite of it, in evil be infants. Did you catch that? Verse twenty, brethren, do not be children. And you're thinking, yet in evil be infants. What does he mean by that? That's very per- per- peculiar, I think, the wording of that. Children, if you remember Saint Augustine and his writings in, of course, the doctrines as well as the City of God, um, and of course, famously like the Confessions. By the way, if you've never read the Confessions by Saint Augustine, you got to read that book. It's extraordinary. It's kind of hard to read because it's a translated of the Latin. But um, it's so good. (laughs) I can't commend it enough. It's really, really good. Confessions by Augustine, read that. Um, But children, of course, as Augustine examined, are innately selfish creatures, right? They're not always selfish, but they're generally selfish creatures. They seek only that which is good for themselves, only that which benefits themselves. Their world centers around themselves, their needs and their wants. Now, as I'm explaining this, you're thinking, oh my gosh, my friends are like this too, and they're adults. No, no, <laughs> they have a general <laughs> mature understanding to be able to not, oper- that's just sin, right? They're just operating. By- Children have a general tendency. They, ha- they don't have the knowledge or the capacity to think beyond their own needs, right? They're thinking about themselves, their wants, their needs, babies. They cry when they're sleepy, they're hungry, they're tired, whatever it may be, right? They demand those very things, their needs and their wants and their actions are always motivated by personal gain, Above all things. Now, of course, common grace, you know, basically allows for even children who are selfish creatures to at times extend and show, you know, godly features as well. But on the general, they are selfish creatures. Their thinking is quite simple and their thinking is quite lacking. They forget easily and they retain very little information at a time. Now, of course, there's other areas of the children's mind, which is quite advanced, like language recept- reception. Um, there's studies on this, right? About like, how the human brain, when we're a child and we're developing, we're actually language savants. They can learn multiple languages simultaneously, stuff like that. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean intelligence. That's just developmental stages of the human brain, right? But the mental capacity of children is, of course, lacking in comparison to the capacity Of a fully grown and developed adult. So that's not to say that children do not have outstanding mental mental capabilities in some areas, but we're talking on the general grounds of Paul's analogy and teaching. This is the area he's addressing the thinking component, the thinking maturely component. Conversely, Paul says to be childish or infants in evil. So he says, Do not be this, do not be a child in your thinking, but in evil. Yeah, be a child in evil, right? What does he mean by this? He wants the Corinthians to be childish in regard to their immoralities in the same sense that they suck at it. He wants them to do in evil what they are attempting to do in good. (laughs) So he's kind of like making, he's kind of pointing at two things. He's saying your attempt to be good is childish. I'd rather you do that in your attempt of evil. In other words, you suck at doing good so I'd rather you suck at doing bad. <laughs> Does that make sense? Paul's, Paul's being very rhetorical here. His argument is a little bit hard to follow in the English sometimes. But in the Greek, it's extraordinary. Do you see the double layer of his criticism of the Corinthians? It's quite intelligent, I think. It's a very snarky remark, if you will. He's basically saying this. Corinthians, be bad at being bad, <laughs> right? Is what he's saying. It's a very tongue-in-cheek-like statement from the apostle. However, very clever. So that's what he's urging them to do. Be like a child, like an infant in evil, but be mature in your thinking as a believer for the good. Which brings us to the second point. He then quotes, peculiarly, Isaiah 28, So So verse 21, the judgment from the Assyrians. Now you might wonder, like, why is this verse or this point titled the judgment of Assyrians? That's the context of Isaiah 28. So in order to understand his argument in 22, we need to understand 20, or Isaiah 28, as quoted in verse 21. So let me give you the context. Paul then draws from what he calls the law, the Torah. The Torah in the Jewish sense, and Paul being himself a former Jew, is the Old Testament, its entire construct. He quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 to 12, but the exact reason and choice for this particular quotation of this particular text in light of the context of Paul's teaching on the gifts could seem odd at first glance. So let me give you the context. The context of the Isaiah passage is as follows. Those of you, does anyone know the context of Isaiah 28:11? 11? Great, now you're going to learn. Here you go. Samaria is the geographical context in Isaiah 28. Samaria, of course, is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, mainly constituted by the tribe of Ephraim and half of Manasseh. The Israelites there had grown distant from the Lord. To put it lightly, they basically became a faithless community. Um, They would be deemed a faithless community. People who are unbelieving. Now throughout the chapter, you can see in chapter 28 of Isaiah that Samaria had fallen into drunkenness and nonsensical slander. They were never sober. It reads, and Isaiah describes even like in verse I believe it's nine or ten as the tables being covered in vomit because they're so drunk. They're just drinking all the time. Priest, non priest, right? So called believer, so called like, doesn't matter. Everyone was just drunk all the time, complete alcoholics, vomiting over everything. And here comes Isaiah the prophet, and he's trying to share with them, hey, Repent and believe, or there will be judgment upon you, right? That's the work of the prophet. Guess what their response was? Um, So as he gives this warning, these false teachers, false priests, false prophets, if you will, they come up to Isaiah, and guess what they do? They ridicule him. They mock him, the man of God, right? And he says to that, or they say to him, to his message of repentance and, and belief, if you read Isaiah 28 verses 9 to 13, you'll get what they say. I'm paraphrasing here. They basically say this. Who are you that teaches us? We are the priests. We're the teachers. We're the wise men. Are we like children? Are we infants that we need your help? Like he mo- they mock him, right? Now I'm sure you can pick up on all of the irony here, of course. The drunk, the drunk <laughs> uh, alcoholics who are claiming to Isaiah who are you to teach us, right? And then Paul is, of course, using the image of be mature in your mind. Don't be like a child. You can see the loose, like sort of like the connective tissue there, right? Already. So there's an, there's an irony in their questioning. Who are you that teaches us that we, are we like children to you? If I was Isaiah, I'd be like, well, yeah, <laughs> like look at your life, right? <laughs> like, um, but of course, that's not what he says, but I'm sure Paul picked up on that language as well. And then we get to verse 11, the verse that Paul quotes, Isaiah's response to this nonsensical banter and ridicule of of him and God by the drunkards of Samaria is this. I'm paraphrasing once again. Yes, God will speak to you. He will speak to you, but he will speak to you in a language and in a tongue that you will not
1: understand. But
0: although they won't understand what is being spoken, the language itself, His warning in the final verse of Isaiah 28 is this. The message will be clear to you. You may not understand the language that's being spoken, but the message will be clear to you. So what happens? Samaria is conquered by the Assyrian kingdom. The Assyrians who spoke, of course, a different tongue, a different language. They came and laid siege to the Samaritans and although their words were foreign and they could not understand or comprehend what was being spoken by their enemy, they perceived it, if you read the, of course, what happens in the actual event historically, they perceived it as what? A message of God's judgment against them
1: So you can kind of see now why Paul is quoting Isaiah 28:11. Right. The message was one of
0: judgment. The judgment of God against who? An unbelieving people. For what reason? Punishment for their non-faith and their non-repentance. Assyria was, in Isaiah 28, 11, a sign of judgment to unbelievers. Even though it was given through foreign language. Point three, we then get to the crux of the issue. Verse 22, tongues and prophecy as signs. So it brings us to this main verse that causes so much dispute in the Christian scholarly world. Without going through every theory with you, and I'll just note there are over nine of these theories, and then there's intricacies to them all. Allow me to present the most widely accepted interpretation, not because, and I don't think it's valid because it's widely accepted, I think it's widely accepted because it's valid. It's the right one, in my opinion, if you will take it for what it is, but I, I mean, just reading through the text, this is the one that makes sense. In light of the context of Isaiah twenty-eight, eleven, there are various forms of this interpretation and its details, but the general framework of the argument and interpretation is the same. Paul says this, two words to begin verse 22, So then, what does that mean? It connects the previous quotation of Isaiah twenty-eight eleven with what he is about to say in verse 22. And what he says is this, Tongues are for a sign for unbelievers only. Not believers. Only unbelievers. And prophecy is is for a sign for believers only, not unbelievers. He's not saying that the gift of tongues can only be used to unbelievers and that prophecy can only be used for believers. That's not what he's saying. Don't misread it. Because what is in question is not their general usage as teaching or communicative instruments of God's commands and word, but rather their specific usage and purpose and function as a sign to these two communities, the believing and unbelieving. Paul has already taught us. What did he teach us? That prophecy is clearly, between the two, an intelligible means of teaching and communication to any group of people that are assembled. It's effective for both, and he'll get get to that in verses 23 to 25. And tongues, if interpreted, he has written for us Paul has said achieves the same thing only if it's interpreted but we're dealing with uninterpreted tongues so what is in question is what Paul means by the term sign what does he mean by sign here and in light of the context of Isaiah 28 I don't know how you come to any other conclusion about what Paul means uninterpreted tongues is uniquely a sign to unbelievers who will hear nothing but mindless speech when they hear the gift of tongues, right? The, I mean, just like us, even for believers, well, that's what we hear. But not only will they hear nonsensical, just speech that makes no sense, it will communicate to them as a function by God, His judgment. How does, that, how does, how does it achieve that? The spectacular, the phenomena, the paranormal things of the Christian faith will be assigned to unbelievers. That God's judgment upon them is at hand. That's the function of these things. Whereas prophecy, because it clearly communicates, is uniquely assigned for the believer in that its content is intelligible to the believer and its message can be followed by the believer. To believers, thus, prophecy is a means by which we are edified. And also warned of sin so that we may repent. So when proper prophetic teaching is given to us, it is a sign to the believer of hope in light of God's judgment. And tongues is a sign of doom in light of God's judgment to the unbeliever. Let me just, let me just give you a couple extra notes so that it makes sense to you because this is hard and difficult to grasp. Samaria rejected Isaiah's warning on the basis that they knew better than him. Who are you to teach us? They said. They could not see their sinful ways. In the book of Isaiah, what do we read? They were blind to it. Men are blind to the truth of God. Their eyes could not see, their ears could not hear. That is the most quoted text in all of the New Testament from the Old Testament. Jesus himself used those words over and over and over again. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 So to them, a sign was given that judgment had come. Assyria, communicating things in a foreign language, their actions and, that, and their conquering of them was a sign of God's judgment. To unbelievers, the Christian faith is nonsensical and mindless banter. So to them, the paranormal phenomenons of the faith are signs that actually give them more reason to reject the faith. Right? When we give this general community that says Christianity is bogus, it's all lies, it's all made up, it's hocus pocus, it's all in your head, and we go to them and go, yeah, but Jesus is this, and we're going through these things, and God worked in my life in this way, and we're giving them all this spirituality, it is foreign to them. Jesus says the things of the Spirit are foolish to the people of the world. They will not get it. They will not fathom this. They will not be able to make sense of it. And so for them, when they hear your testimony, it's good for you. That's bogus, but good for you. And they continue to reject God on the grounds of the
1: phenomena. So tongues,
0: uninterpreted, is a sign to the unbeliever of God's judgment and wrath. But they won't comprehend that Until, just like the Samaritans, it's too late.
1: Here's the radical truth of the
0: Christian faith. In the end, the very end, when Jesus returns, guess what? Everyone becomes a believer.
1: But guess what? The church just happens to be the believing community that what? where it's not too late. And for the rest, they will believe. They will bow, but it will be too late. Your life is the one chance you have to put your life in Christ and to follow Him.
0: So judgment comes to both. To one community, it is a sign, and it will be too late for them when they realize the reality. But for us, the prophetic teachings like this, pulpit teaching for you, Bible studies, discipleship, all of these things are beneficial to you as a sign that Christ is working in you in light
1: of the judgment to come so that you will not feel the wrath of God. To the believer, we grow
0: and mature in the faith through our communities that teach us through means that are intelligible and clearly communicative. This is really deep, right? And a lot of you are probably sitting going, is this really what Paul meant? Like, is, is this, this is possible that this is what Paul meant? This is exactly what Paul meant. You read Thessalonians, you read Ephesians, you read Romans, it is clear what Paul's eschatology was. This fits perfectly with Paul's eschatological expectation
1: of the second coming of Christ.
0: To the non-believer, this will be foolishness. So what does Paul then commend when we get to the final point of today's sermon? Verses 23 to 25. In light of this, Paul says, do not speak thus or use uninterpreted tongues in the church. (laughs) Right? Right? If this is true, then why use the gift of tongues in the church? It serves them no, nothing, no benefit, right? What is correct in Isaiah 28 11? Isaiah's prophetic word to them, warning them in a language they could understand of the coming judgment. That's where our focus ought to be, right? In these last verses, Paul seems to say that the gift of prophecy ought to be used in the assembly for the sake of unbelievers, that they can understand and come to know the faith and even fall on their face to worship God. This is the hope from Paul's end. But this hope can only become reality when the church is communicating in a language that the community can understand. What may appear like a sudden contradiction to the prior verses is not. We know this. Why? Because of what we just learned. Paul is speaking about the efficacy of the gifts assigned in verse 22. Whereas in these verses, he is identifying the capacity of intelligible communication in the general assembly of the church that might sometimes include the presence of unbelievers who happen to enter in. His conclusion is thus simple. And his thrust is absolute in chapters 12 to 14. Teach understandably in the gathering of God's people so that all may comprehend the truth of God's word. Believers and unbelievers. We are not to operate for the purposes of providing signs to our community, but to provide sound teachings that can be understood this is the issue at hand in corinth they were using these spiritual gifts as signs of spirituality so as to say look look at the spectacular things we're experiencing don't you want to know god too right demons are possible like are are capable sorry of imitating these things i always i always find it funny that like people who are promoters of the gift of tongues in in general assembly it also happens to be the one gift that is most easily uh faked (laughs) because i uh this this is really bad like don't don't do what i do but i used to be like a bit of a smart butt so i used to go to like you know charismatic churches and i'd be like oh you believe in the gift of tongues in the assembly like yeah what about the other gifts they're like oh yeah we believe all those gifts and i'm like so like which one of these gifts do you have like, oh i have the gift of tongues i'm like oh cool and then like, I'm like, so can I hear it? And then they, sh- they say their gift of tongues. And I'm like, oh, cool, cool, cool. Anyone here have the gift of healing? <laughs> Anyone have the gift of demon like exorcism? Like Show me that stuff too. Why is it the gift of tongues? That it's, it's the gift that everyone has. Why not the other ones? Just so happens to be
1: comfortably the easiest one to fake. right? I'm not saying everyone's faking it. I'm just saying, why use it if it could be, we could do something so much more,
0: right? The gift of teaching in the church, the truth of God's word, understandably. Outside the gathering of the church, the gifts can function as signs to the believing and unbelieving communities, and they can be used in private, you know, edification. Paul commends that. Paul says that's okay. He does it, right? Right?
1: But within the assembly of God's people and the church, there's only one set and category of gifts that Paul believes will edify
0: everyone. And that's prophecy. Okay, conclusion. Let's take a moment, I think, to examine what are some things we can take away from this lesson. There's three things that come to mind for me. Maybe there's more for you right, as the Spirit leads you. But three things. Firstly, the, les- the lesson itself is powerful, isn't it? The teaching of the text itself is already enough to, I think, convict and, and really like, enrich our minds and our hearts. It teaches us to examine Scripture carefully, to read intently, to not overlook any detail in Scripture. Secondly, Paul reminds us that in the church, we are to communicate clearly to one another. This accomplishes both the task of witnessing Christ to unbelievers who, have, who may happen to visit our church and for the believers, it builds each, other's, uh, builds each other up. And then thirdly, Paul teaches us to not think like a child but to always be mature in our thinking. The thing is hope is that we would mature to grow in how we think and thus how we live. Let's pray and reflect on God's word today.